1: Is Jericho baby Jericho
2: Jericho okay so one of the probably most famous wrestling families in the world is the uh, the beavis family most famous of the crew is uh, Soraya, uh very good friend of mine but her brother uh, Zach zodiac is with us today First and foremost, how is that kind of being known as the brother of Soraya, the brother of your little sister? Does that does that ever get on your nerves? <laughs> you know what at the beginning,
3: yeah. But now, you know, I'm never gonna get away from that. She's a worldwide megastar. Yeah. And yeah, everyone's always like Are you the brother of Paige or Soraya? And I'm like, Yeah, that's me. I don't I don't have a name. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I guess that's kind of the you know, a good place to start considering that you grew up. In wrestling, I mean, your your father is a wrestler, your mother is a wrestler as well. So, how was that for you growing up within the business? And what are your kind of your earliest wrestling memories uh, from when you were a kid? Because you've been around it your whole life.
3: Yeah, wrestling has been my entire life. It's been a blessing and it's been a nuisance at times. I'm I'm not going to lie about it. I don't know no different. Obviously, you know this was the the cards that I was dealt with. But one of my one of my first memories was back in the cattle market, the in Norwich. My dad was a, a big baby face, and there was a gentleman called Danny Boy Collins, and he hit him with a power driver on the concrete. Right. And I remember my dad got uh, paramedics and everyone in. They put the neck brace on him. I'm about five years old, and I'm losing it. You know, the tears are rolling. I'm fully into this. Kayfabe was huge at that point. You know, and I remember seeing my dad after gone backstage to check he's okay, and he's cuddling Danny boy Collins. And I'm like, what was that? You know, and, uh, he said, welcome to wrestling buddy. And that was my first real memory of professional wrestling, watching my dad being carried out on a stretcher after being power drived on concrete.
2: Well, it's funny because I, I used to bring my kids to the matches, but very, very infrequently because it was the same. When you're that age, you can't tell the difference between kayfabe fabe and wrestling is, is, is a show or whatever it may be. I remember they were just crying and just, like sobbing. Yes. Because you could say I'm okay, I'm okay, but they don't buy it. It's like you can't equate that, right? They've
3: just visually seen different. It doesn't matter what you say. Right. You know, I've got three kids myself. My oldest daughter is 7. She she can't come to the shows. She can't watch
2: this. Yeah, cuz you, like you said, you, you you can't put the fantasy away from the reality. But so what was it like growing up because I know your parents have A promotion and and that sort of a thing. So were you kind of tagging along to the shows or were you, did they put you to work at the shows?
3: Yeah. Primarily I would drive around with mum and dad. I would follow them to all the the town events. Um, But when I was six years old, we do the holiday camps over here, which are, are massive. And at six years old, I was going out with the baby face as their mascot and I would get three spots of in the match I would get the Bronco Buster in the corner. I would get the, the, what they call the peekaboo, where the villain would chase me around the ring. The baby face would be hiding behind the post. I would duck the clothesline and the, and the villain would eat the clothesline on the outside. <laughs> and then we'd do either the what's up or I'd hit like a, a flip off the middle rope or something. And at the end of the match, the babyface would would be up and uh, I'd be celebrating in the ring. And uh, my dad would pick me up, body slam me, hit a big leg drop. This guy's like 23 stone. <laughs> that's where i learned the art of selling because my dad said to me after this leg drop you do not move in fact you hold your breath i want people to think that i've i've killed this kid (laughs) and many times people believed it you know i'm laying in the middle of the ring and there's beers being thrown and people are losing their mind and i had done this with dad on the holiday camps up until i was 10 years old before i made my debut
2: that is unbelievable what a heel what a great heel (laughs) move right
3: (laughs) Indeed.
2: Let me ask you a couple of things there because uh, we've never discussed. Tell me about the exact details of the holiday camps. Oh, the holiday camps. So it's like a trailer park. <laughs> <laughs> so there's
3: there's multiple caravans or chalets. It's a family gig. So it never used to be as expensive. It was a cheap getaway for maybe council estate folk that wanted to just take their children away. And in the middle of the complex, there would be a venue that hold anything from 200 to three, four thousand. And these holiday camps would pay my dad's company to go there upon an hour's show, three matches. So we're going to an audience that, you know, has got free entertainment, which was professional wrestling, you know, and we'd have to go out there and entertain these these people, which I believe is probably the best experience you can get in wrestling because you're not going out there to wrestling fans. You're going out there to people that are just come to watch free entertainment. And as I said, it could be, you know, a couple of hundred on one camp, and then you travel an hour down the road, you do two or three in a day, and you finish it with one of the bigger camps of, say, 3,000 people, you know, so this is continuous. It's not as long nowadays. It used to be Easter through to the Halloween. Now we have just eight weeks from July to the beginning of September, but in the eight weeks, you can get 100,
2: 120 shows under your belt. That's amazing. It's kind of like a rite of passage for young wrestlers in England to go and kind of cut your teeth and learn. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned to uh, villain is of course a heel. Yes. And what's the word for the baby face there? Face. We'll say baby face or face. Well, when I first blue started, eye. blue eye. When I first started, <laughs> I went to Germany, and Boston Blackie told me it was a blue eye. Blue <laughs> eye. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so you mentioned that you made your debut at ten.
3: Yeah, so I was traveling around as a mascot. As a mascot. My dad, right? I was in a, I was in a blue Power Ranger outfit. The pink Power Ranger outfit come later, but the blue was where I started, right? Did you have a mask? <laughs> yeah, blue mask, blue, complete Power Ranger <laughs> outfit uh, under the name Max Mini or Mini Max. It was reverse guy from WCW. Right, I think yeah, yeah. there was a Max Mini in WCW. Right. So I went under Mini Max in England. <laughs> <laughs> but I turned up to a hall show in Clacton and one of the guys got caught up in traffic and couldn't get there. So the promoter said to my dad, look, how about we put Zach in the clown outfit and get him to go out as Dink the Clown with Dunk the Clown and we'll get him to go into the eight man tag. And dad's like, what do you think boy? I was like, yeah, let's do it. So I got in, I remember I remember exactly what I'd done. I remember the guy holding my head and I'm swinging punches, trying to get to him. I get rid of the arm, I give him a low blow. I run off the ropes, I duck the line, big flying head scissors, jump to the middle rope on the uh the hurricane runner from the middle. I then go again, he catch me in a dive across, big slam, leg drop off the top rope, onto me. I was the first one eliminated. Three minutes. And I'd done that 42 times in that year.
2: (laughs) 42 matches when you're 10 years old. Yes. It's funny because I remember I I wasn't allowed to go to wrestling school until I was 18, so I went to college for a couple of years. And here, that seems to be the English way. You start in your teens or, in this case, when you're 10. Yeah. I mean, how is that even allowed? Like, how is that even legal?
3: Just because I think Dad was the boss. Right. He used to always put a mask on me, whether I was the Blue Power Ranger or I was a clown. He would tell people, you know, he's a – politically correct now i know but back then he would say i was a mexican midget i spoke no english he would kayfabe everyone in the building you know uh, i wanted to like to call him dad <laughs> it was just sit in the corner be quiet and you know cut your teeth in the business boy
2: <laughs> so what do you remember seeing like that because obviously you're around some seasoned veterans and i'm sure you guys are drinking or doing whatever because i remember when i was a kid uh, my dad played pro hockey in the nhl and i remember getting put into a garbage can. I remember being given a cigarette probably at about five years old and a beer. Do you have memories like that?
3: Yeah, a lot of memories like that. I don't drink anymore for that reason. I had my first (laughs) beer at like six years old and it was one of them green stubby (laughs) bottled beers. Um, uh, But, you know, we we would travel a lot of miles. I remember some of the boys, they would get like page three at the Sun newspaper and they'd stick it to the roof of the van. And at like seven, eight years old and I'm laying trying to get some sleep All I could see is naked women in the roof of the van, you know, (laughs) or or they'd all be sitting there drinking or smoking or just do what they had to do to get from town to town. Mm. So yeah, I, I was around the greats and I'm very thankful for that. I'm a young man, but the knowledge I gained from people like Drew McDonald, Robbie Brookside, Danny Boy Collins, Tony Sinclair, the list is endless. And I got to sit and watch these guys night after night. It was, it was incredible.
2: I worked with Drew McDonald in 93 in Germany, along with what I told you about Boston Blackie. And he's, he's no longer with us. He passed away years ago. But what a, what a tremendous worker he was. Let's talk a little bit about Drew McDonald and some memories you might have of him.
3: Yeah. So oh, there's a lot of memories of Drew McDonald.
2: <laughs> I, remember,
3: I remember that um, I didn't see Drew for a couple of months. Uh, and in that space of time, he got a Melanotan.
2: Yes, um, he looked like the genie from uh, from Arabian Nights. Right, so <laughs> Drew was the whitest of white Scottish
3: men, and then within a couple of months, he comes to me, and he is black. I mean, and I've got Drew. What's happening? And he's like, tan baby. It's the best thing you'll ever you'll ever try in your life. He said, like, "Look at my teeth," and his teeth are just
2: blinging i'm like oh my god and and for people listening he literally was black like you might think he was african-american like he was literally black
3: yes like honestly it was night and day (laughs) i could not believe it drew was he was the guy in the dressing room that just kept everyone together when you're on the road week after week after week you need that guy that is sort of the clown of, of the group this was drew mcdonald i remember drew you know getting all the lads to uh Urinate into a pint glass and telling everyone to chuck five pounds in the pot and he'd drink it. This become a you know, this become a nightly thing. Yeah. And he'd be like, hey, if I can get an extra 50 quid in my pocket, I'll do it. You know, nothing was off limits for Drew. <laughs> he was
2: such a, <laughs> a, a, a just a, just a strange man. Like I remember when I showed up in, in Germany, it was Hamburg, I was 22 years old, and we're living on the Reaper Bond which obviously, you know, is the reaper bond and like, uh, just anything, anything goes. And I remember he took me to the private booth, you know, porn video booths. And then the one where the the screen comes up and there's the chick (laughs) dancing or people having sex or whatever it may be. It's like, isn't this great lad? I'm like, (laughs) no, it's not great. It's weird. I hate it. It's like probably some things I can't even repeat here as well, but he also too had these kind of prison tattoos. And I remember like, when you had to do a parade in Germany, you'd have to all parade to the ring and stand in a circle. That's right. And he would stand there and he had uh, like a a female naked chick on one thigh and a naked chick on the other thigh. And he could move them. He could move his thighs. He'd always just stare at me and move his thighs. Like, you know, with that was his party (laughs) trick, but also a a great worker as well.
3: Oh, phenomenal. Phenomenal. I, I worked with Drew a lot in my early teens. So from like 13 till about 18, I was working Drew a lot, and I was getting a really good education. You know, the man used to always say to me, "Less is more, laddie." You know, you need you need to preserve them bumps, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he was just such an old school wrestler, and I feel in the UK we miss these characters. We miss the old school guys in the dressing room that were educating the youngsters and bringing the history of what our industry is. You know, that's seriously lacking nowadays.
2: Well, well you're right, and the funny thing with Drew saying less is more, but this is something you lets you remember. I used to do it quite often. I've stopped doing it now, but I would do a Frankensteiner while standing on the top rope. You would jump up and the guy would catch you and you'd go together. Right? Drew was the guy who I first did that with. And it was his idea. He's like, if I stand on the top rope, like a superplex, you can jump up and give me that twisty reverse thing. And I was like, are you kidding me? Because, you know, Drew was a pretty boxy guy. But big, big guy. Somewhere in, in my scrapbook somewhere, I, I have a picture of us standing up there. And lo and behold, I did it. He took it amazingly. And I was like, wow, that was a great idea, man. Good job. He's so agile. He did understand that side of the, the flashiness that was coming into play at that point in time as well. That's right. Drew knew when to turn it
3: on. If he needed to, the guy could move around that ring. And as you say, he, he was a big dude. Yeah. You know, him and Robbie Brookside, their match was absolutely phenomenal. Honestly, I could sit and watch that night after night. And, you know, they would modify a few things, but the internet wasn't around then, so they could get away with doing the same match. Yeah. You were transfixed. You know, I, I wanted to keep watching it. And, uh, you know, to me, that that was the good good old days of wrestling. They, they really knew how to zone in on their audience. If they needed to do a, a gear change, They knew exactly when. Right. It was a real honor to sit and uh, be brought up with these guys, you know?
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So, set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
2: So, if you start at 10, and I'm sure you're still probably going to school. (coughs) You're not going to school, okay. Uh, On and off. (laughs) What are your parents thinking about that? Are they saying you're going to get into wrestling now at 11? Or are they thinking you still got to go to school? Or what were they telling you?
3: It was difficult it was really difficult because uh as i said there was some problems being in the wrestling family and uh school was one of them you know i'm a big dude i'm i'm six foot three and you know 17 stone i've always been a big guy but in school i used to get bullied for being the wrestler you know in the wrestling family and you know i hated going to school and you know all your friends would come up to you and oh this is fake that's fake and at the time every wrestler was trying to Cover the business and, you know, no, it's not fake. It's this, it's that. And, you know, I was one of those guys that my dad said, you know, you, you've got to defend this business no matter what, son. Obviously nowadays it's different, but I, I had a real hard time in school. And even when my high, my high school teachers, I would say to them, look, I was born to be a professional wrestler. This is what I do. You know, I'm 13. I've already had like 200 matches. I know this is my destiny. Like don't tell me, you know, different. I left school without any qualifications. Uh, in fact, I left school at 13. That's when I become a full-time professional wrestler. At the age of 13, I was doing anywhere between 150 and 200 matches per year and carried on doing that through to today. That is insane. At 13 years old, how big were you at 13? I would say I was probably around five eight, maybe 10 stone dripping wet, like 140 pounds. But um, I was billed, again, as a Mexican. I'd wear the mask. My body was completely covered. I was doing stuff then that was deemed really cool. So, you know, we're talking 20 years ago. So when you're doing the backflips and the hurricane runners and stuff like that, there was only one match that had that spot 20 years ago. You know, so I was deemed as the, the flyer of the team. We'd either go on first or we'd go on popcorn first after the interval. Uh, and my job was just to wow the audience, you know? um, Put my body on the line, the guy would post and throw me everywhere. And uh, yeah, I was just the real life superhero of, of Britain. So
2: at 13, obviously, I mean, you're, you're still such a, a kid, a child, you know what I mean? So you must have had to grow up pretty quickly to be on the road, because as we know, being on the road isn't easy and all the trials and tribulations and pitfalls and temptations and that sort of thing. How did you deal with all that at such a young age?
3: It was difficult. I was told to grow up really early. My mom and dad and all the boys used to say to me, you know, you're going to you're gonna see and hear things that can't be repeated we're treating you as an adult. As soon as you start acting like a child, you know, you'll be put back as a child. You'll be going back to school, et cetera. But I was I was welcomed in. I was part of the team. You know, if I wanted a beer at the end of the show, I can have a beer at the end mm-hmm. of the show. I'm 13, but I'd earned that beer according to my parents. right? And, and I'm very thankful to them because I told them and they knew from an early age, this was all I ever wanted to do. This is it. Professional wrestling is me. I love this industry. You know, and they didn't hold me back. You know, and I know most parents be like, let's let's get your qualifications like I want to with my three children. But they, they knew and they supported me heavily. And, um, you know, at 13, I, I wasn't just traveling in England. I was, I was going around Europe, going to Norway uh, and places like that. 14, 15, I was going there on my own. Mm. So, yeah, you know, we, we had to grow up quick, but I'm very thankful
2: for the life that I had and they were just accepting of you like you like English promoters or you mentioned going to Norway age was never an issue well no when you when you think about i don't know let's talk about
3: Wayne Rooney he was 15 when he got signed to to Everton you know age is just a number if you've got the talent then you're going to be booked and the way i guess they looked at it it like 15 maybe they got to pay me 10 pounds maximum you know they weren't paying me big money right this was a kid that was willing to put his body on the line just to get reps and, and get as many matches under my belt as possible. You know, it was never about the money at that age. Mum and dad were paying for everything, my food, you know, whatever I needed. Mom and dad supplied it. They just wanted me to get in the ring and, and get my reps.
2: How about being on the road and traveling across the country and, and all that sort of thing? Was, was there any times like breakdowns or, or fights or like, you know, crazy road stories like that happen all the time? Which, which Do you remember things like that happening to you?
3: Oh my God. there's been many times, Chris, to be honest with you. You know, uh I we've broke down so many times because my dad will never buy an expensive car. You know, he'd buy a car to put miles on it. it we're always rubbing the car like, come on, sweetheart, get us home. And you know, so there's been many a times we've broke down and you know, there's maybe six in a four-seater car and we've been told by the AA that they're gonna be six hours, so You know, people are getting miserable and that's where the arguments start happening. The beers start coming into play. (laughs) But to be honest, as soon as I sort of turned 14, 15 and started taking my own path on my own, that's when I really got to experience stuff. Because being under your mum and dad, although they're quite lenient, you're still reserved. I'm a very respectful guy to my mum, especially, you know. Mm -hmm. So yeah, once I got out of their shadow a little bit and started getting booked on my own merit, that's where we started getting the uh, the after parties, the good time and uh, yeah, memories that will live with me forever.
2: So talk about, about your career in, in England, some, some of the highlights for you, because you mentioned, you know, you started in 2000s. And how was the English scene at that time? Because it seems to go in waves. England's very strong, and then it kind of burns out a bit. They think it's very strong. Right before the pandemic, it was really, really hot. And I think it's kind of getting back to that again now. But what was it like for you in, the, in that time frame?
3: My career sort of took off when we got into another boom. This was when people like Brian Dixon and Scott Conway were bringing over the guys that had just left the WWE. So we were getting like Earthquake, Greg the Hammer, Valentine, the Bushwhackers, Barbarian, Yokozuna. All these guys were coming over and they were drawing huge houses for us. I was really lucky. You know, a year before that, British wrestling was dead. You know, we're, they're getting 20, 30 people. Mm. The Americans were coming over. Business boomed. The Americans stopped coming over and you just see a real dip once again. Around sort of 05, 06, I remember every show I turned up to, we're all looking at the curtain to see how many people's actually going to turn up. And there's multiple shows where you know, there's been three, four, five people in the audience. And my dad said, guys, let's go out there. Then five could bring five next time. Like the show goes on. Yeah. I, I, like I said, I come in at a time where it was booming, but I definitely felt the hard times of British wrestling. Around 05, 06, I didn't think we were going to be able to pick ourselves back up and, and carry on.
2: I remember those days when you'd go and there'd be like more guys in the dressing room than there is in the crowd. And it's, it's people say sometimes, like, oh man, how is it working? Like in a stadium? I'm like, it's way easier to work in a stadium in front of 50,000 people than it is to work in front of five. Right. That's hard to be in there with like five, seven people. It's just like, Oh, those days of just like, you just feel so, I felt so bad for the people that showed up. They, they were going to the wrestling show. I'm like, this is it. Yeah. There's nobody here. We're losers for showing up, you know?
3: Yeah, and you're right. There's that cringiness that, you know, you're trying to put out there, this is a professional wrestling show and only six people's turned up. Right. You know, and you're coming out, you know, babyface trying to bring the energy or, you know, as a villain, tell them the five people to don't clap their hands, keep yourselves quiet, don't move off the seats, blah, blah, yeah. blah. It's cringy for everyone in the building. But again, it was repetitions, you know, and it was a massive learning curve for us. So again, I'm thankful for them times as well. It sort of developed the person I am today. Well, and
2: we kind of just experienced that too when I went to the pandemic and we were all wrestling, you know, the AAW in front of no people. Yeah, twenty, you know, uh, enhancement guys around the ring clapping, and you're like, man, I remember they were like, I feel so bad for the young guys having to work in front of no people. Like the young guys, they feel bad for me. I work <laughs> in front of thousands of people a night for the last thirty years. <laughs> <laughs> What were some of the booming companies at that point in time when it was getting hot? Because like you mentioned, when the Americans would come and get hot, but I mean, obviously, you're you're moving up the scene and and probably having some pretty big matches yourself. I was working with All Stars, so that's Brian Dixon. Right. Can you do a Brian Dixon imitation for me, please?
3: Oh, Okie okay, dokie, then. Nice to see you, Chris. It's been a while. Uh, you still want to do Butlins for 50 pounds? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've known that voice uh, since '93 from Robbie Brookside. He always did a great Brian Dixon invitation. <laughs> Robbie's the
3: best at Brian. Yeah. You know, I'm nearly there, but it's that Scouse accent. I'm a Norwich yeah. boy. So,
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: But yeah, so Brian Dixon, you had Scott Conway's. Company, which I forgot the name of, that sounds good, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Then you had Rumble Promotions, which was uh, run by Stephen Barker. You had John Fremantle. You know, they were the senior organizations. Once you start getting sort of 05, 06, you had people like FWA coming in, which at that point, my brother was so hot on the indie scene. It was really hard to try and get on these shows because my brother was top dog. Is your brother Roy? My brother Roy, the zebra kid.
2: Okay. So he's the top dog there and it's hard for you. You have to be in his shadow now. Yeah. So it's been hard,
3: Chris. It's been really hard. <laughs> my whole career, you know, I had my dad who was a super He was known as, you know, one of the best tag teams that this country ever produced. I had my mum who's known as, you know, one of the, the best technical submission wrestlers and that's worldwide. Then my brother come onto the scene he was incredible. You know, he was so unique. He was super fast running the ropes. He was a hard hitter. You know, everyone loved him. And then, you know, when they start slowing, I think this is my time. And then my sister gets signed. <laughs> so I've lived in a lot of shadows. But, you know, right now, 2023, I believe there's not a shadow that's sort of overcast to me. I'm I'm Zach Zodiac. This is, you know, I'm stepping out the shadows. And the spotlight is finally coming this way. It's taken 20 years, but it's coming this way.
2: Did you team a lot with your brother as well?
3: Yeah, we were the UK hooligans for about 12 years.
2: Right, right. I remember that, seeing that, yeah. And that was uh, as as heels? We were very versatile. You know, on a Friday, we'd be wrestling
3: for my dad's company, doing a bit of comedy because the fans loved it. Mm. Uh, On a Saturday, we'd be at an indie company, and we were very smash-mouth brawlers, you know, taking it all over the building. And then a Sunday, we'd be wrestling maybe for Brian Dixon doing – Technical wrestling, tag team, sort of tag in and out stuff. So it was whatever was needed for the show. But the hooligan, the hooligan phase taught me so much. I got to work some of the very best in the industry. I think one of the highlights for us is when we worked War Machine, PCW, we had an absolute belt of a match. So much so, Ring of Honor, Delirious was actually there. And he was like, ah, oh, you know, we, we need to get the hooligans over to America, blah, 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 blah. And then I remember my brother, Oh, God. At the end of the night, he's gone to the bar and he's ordered a drink and Delirious has gone to the bar without his mask on. And he's basically said to my brother, so uh, what do you think of Ring of Honor nowadays? And he went, that's a load of shit. You know, it's better with Nigel McGuinness and this, that, and the other. Oh. He went back to the promoter and went, yeah, we don't want the hooligans now. Oh. So we sit and laugh about it now, but at the time I've gone, Roy, no. <laughs> oh, no. That's the worst. <laughs> right? It's the worst because he's the booker and everything. So we <laughs> shot ourselves in the foot. We've done the same thing with with New Japan. We wrestled Juice and Fun Delight year in in a show in Cheltenham, uh, Super Clash it was called, and he loved us. He loved you know just how unique we were. We we've got our own style in Norwich, you know. We're just these hard hitting, technical, brawling like just we're hybrid athletes here. I think that's the correct word, right? Right. And Liga loved us. And he's like, he went back to New Japan and they basically said, why don't you boys come out, you know, come live in the dojo for three months, this, that, and the other. But we, again, we were brought up old school. I was like, you're not going to pay for yourself to go stay out there, boys, and live in a dojo. Mm. What a moron. What an absolute moron. You know, this was, what, 10 years ago? I should have jumped at the opportunity. Yeah, But again, sometimes I was led a little bit too old school. I'd never pay for myself to go anywhere. If they want you, they'll, they'll come for you, et cetera. Now I realize, no, you've got to market yourself. You've got to get out there. Sure. But again, it was that old school way,
2: right? Well, and, and that's one of those things too, when you come up in the business a certain way, you're not thinking like other 21-year-old kids would because you are been in the business for 11 years. You know what I mean? And then you've got right. your parents who are probably saying like, yeah, if they want you, they'll come get you. And, and you're right. It's one of those things where you got to go, you know, sometimes spend a little money to make a little money and think big picture Absolutely. rather than just think. I remember a story I just told the other day on, when we watched Saturday's main event of Hercules had a gig with uh, with New yeah. Japan and decided that he didn't want to go for a tour. So he, back in those days he had paper tickets. So he cashed in his paper ticket and took the three grand and then gave up the you know 15 grand a week that he was making for the tour. It's like, what, what are you doing? Like you're ripping oh him off God. and ripping yourself off even worse. But it's just kind of that short-term thinking. So it is. what about for WWE? I mean, obviously WWE is very popular in England as is AW, as is pro wrestling in general. Yes. Did you ever have any tryouts or, 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 or brushes with them at all? Yeah, so funny enough, Drew
3: McDonald was the agent for WWE. Right. So after wrestling a couple of years with Drew on the circuit, he said to me, right, there, I'm going to get you a WWE trial. So uh, <laughs> he sorted that for me. I went there. To be honest, Chris, I've had six WWE trials in total. Wow. The last one being in March 2020, I flew out there, done my physical, done my bloods, done everything. I was pretty much told that this was my time. Then a global pandemic happened. I've not heard nothing since. Shit. During these times, you know, there was always something. You need to cut up. You need to put weight on. You need to get a persona. You need to do this. You need to do that. You know, I would smash the trial. You know, people like Finley and Arn Anderson and Dust. they're like, you're great, like, you're, you're a good worker. You know, you're solid. You know your stuff. Like, the compliments I used to get, you know, it was enough to give me the biggest head in the world. And every time it seemed like I'd have a squash match or big show. And people are saying to me, you're in. Out of the three guys, two got signed. I didn't. And then my sister come for a trial. And the only person they signed was my sister. Then I went next time and there was four of us all working in the ring. And they signed the other three and not me. And I started thinking, what's going on here? Why am I, do I keep being brought back? Why am I working so hard to you know, do everything they're asking of me? But I'm always full at that last hurdle. I just don't get it. But truth be told, I'm um, I'm coming up 32. I truthfully believe I wasn't ready back then. You know, I could have been the best wrestler in the world, but if mentally you're not there, you're just going to crumble under the pressure. And I did have a lot of mental health issues between sort of 19 to 25. And I believe it's because I lived on the road for, as a young lad drinking, sure. you know, under the influence of... Um, guys that you ain't going to say no to if someone say we're going out drinking tonight and i'll get you in a club even though you're underage sure i'll go because you've told me to and and your hierarchy
2: yeah i mean it's almost like you know you never really had a childhood i think of like like a michael jackson or something like that that had a completely different perspective because as an adult because he never had a childhood he was on the road since he was you know six years old like you yeah that might be something that would get to you in your later years for sure yeah. You know, I struggled with that.
3: I struggled with rejection. I didn't know how to take it. i done everything that they asked of me every single time, you know, so much. So when they told me to cut up, fine, you want me to cut up? I went and spoke to uh, Mr. Britain. He gave me a diet plan. I even went on steroids and everything, Chris, I'm not going to lie. You know, mm. i had done everything to get in shape, to go there and not just have the work rate, but to look like a star. But it just seemed no matter what I'd done, wasn't right. Mm. Listen, they're the biggest organization, but they have been the biggest organization in the world for a long time. You know, they were the number one. Everyone wanted to be there. But I think now, now there's so many other companies that are doing really well. For people like me, that always used to sort of chuck all these eggs into one basket and be like, you know, I don't want to be a wrestler. And or The way I try and explain it to people is in professional wrestling, I feel like I've been in the championship, the Football League championship. For years. I've never made it to the Premier League. And the Premier League was WWE. Right. But right. now there's multiple Premier League companies out there, which opens it up to so many people. You know, someone like me that no is not going to take me ever because I've had too many tryouts and I've been turned down too many times. To now see there's other options, that, that's the best thing in the world for me. I've found a new fire. You know, I, I train six days a week. I'm in the boxing every morning, I'm in the gym every night. I've, I've repackaged my brand. You know, I'm wrestling for the big companies over here again, like your Revolution Pro Wrestling. And, you know, I wrestled for New Japan last October when they come over here. It, it gives people hope now. WWE is not the be all and end all of professional wrestling no more. And for me, that gave me so much joy. Sure. It sounds horrible, doesn't it? But it gives me so much joy to know that there's now other outlets where I can become a Premier League wrestler.
2: Have you gone, I remember I saw you in the States a few months ago or whatever it was. Do you go and get out of England as much as you can? Are you taking or getting international bookings and getting a chance to go around that way?
3: Yeah, so just this year, I've done France, Germany, Switzerland, Poland, Italy. I've got Germany another four times. Unfortunately, I was meant to have an Australian tour two weeks ago, but paperwork fell through with visas and stuff, which is unfortunate. But right now, my sister's actually helped me get my American work visa. Oh, good. Because when I was out in November uh, for Soraya's full gear debut, I spoke to Tony and Tony was like, hey, let's get you a dark match. And I'm like, yes, let's do that. And he's like, do you have a work visa? I'm like, no, I don't have a work visa. He's like, okay, get one. And then that dark match is ready for you. So my sister helped me with that. Hopefully sort of by August, September time, I've got my visa. And then I'm headed straight out to you guys and going to walk, well, try and walk up to Tony and say, so about that dark match
1: you promised.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we'll get you a dark match for sure. I, I, I can guarantee that for
1: sure. Thank you, man. Do you want a beautiful lawn?
2: Let's talk about, uh, about fighting with my family. I mean, obviously, it's pretty cool the fact that I've done a lot of things, but I've never had anybody play me in a movie. <laughs> and you have, which is cool. So talk about the original documentary, which was also called Fighting for My Family, which I believe was an ITV documentary or BBC or something along those lines. But let's talk about that whole journey and how that was for you and in your family.
3: It was a Channel 4 documentary. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah, we had the Channel 4 documentary. You know, that come about by a gentleman called Max Fisher who, when he was younger, he used to watch my dad as the Superflies. So he's a big fan of my dad. He come and basically said, look, I've, I've been given a, a budget to come up with a documentary. I wanted to do it about you, Ricky, and your career, et cetera. Within the first week of him being there, Drew phoned us and was like, Rick, I've got trials for Zach and Soraya. So the whole dynamic of that documentary changed. Uh, and my dad, being you know so selfless as always, basically said, look, Max, this is your story now. It's not about me. I've had my time. It's about the kids now. Let's go with that. So they did. The whole dynamic of it changed. You know, we got the fairy tale ending of the documentary with one of us getting signed, and that itself was life changing. You know, we're a council estate family, but then people are recognising you in the street. You're going into the city to maybe do a bit of shopping, and people are coming up and going, "I just see you on a Channel Four documentary last night, or last week, or last month," and. You know, for me, that was very overwhelming. I've never been in that situation in my entire life. And obviously, you know, the, the rest of it, Dwayne Rock Johnson, see that in his hotel room one night after filming Fast and Furious 6. He fell in love with the documentary, or reminded him of his family, and he went on to contact Soraya to get the, the movie. And we we were a big part of that here in the UK. We, we took our wrestling rings down there. We had our hand in training, some of the cast, They were brilliant. Stephen Merchant sat down with all of us as individuals and tried to get our story that we wanted to get across. The only part with me that sort of upset me a little bit is the fact that they displayed me as heavy hitter with my sister when, you know, Chris, if you're signed to WWE, they're not going to let you go home and wrestle on an indie show, right? Yeah,
2: of course. yeah. When they
3: added that in a lot of people, you know, that they felt that because they said this was a true story that I actually beat the crap out of my sister. When I didn't, they showed me as a drinker, and I haven't drank in eight years. Uh, there were so many things that I didn't like, but the overall story that they did get out for me, which is what I do here now in the community, working with vulnerable people, training the blind guy to wrestle, just being that community guy that's giving people their dreams. I'm glad they got that out there because that's me. That's what I do here in Norwich every day.
2: It's really interesting to think about that because you obviously, you know, you have no control over how you're portrayed, and it's it's based on a true story, which they can do right. anything they want. So yeah, when you see that, I, I can almost really empathize with that because you don't know until you see that final edit. You'd be like, yeah, we're in the movie. And it's like, what the fuck? I didn't do that. You know, I, I can see that really being something that would bug you.
3: Yeah. Well, it, it sort of lived with me as well because so many people, you know, they see me now as this thug, uh, a jealous brother, you know, a drinker. Right. It really has left a stamp on me and my brand, you know, which – Anyone that knows me know that, you know, I've had maybe three fights in my entire life, you know, and two of them were in high school. Uh, yeah. I'm a person, I'm a lover. I'm not a fighter. I say this all the time. You know, I'm so diplomatic. I'll get in there if other people are arguing. There's, there's too much negativity in the world already. Why, why do we need to spread more, right? Mm-hmm. You know, and with the drinking and everything else. So, you know, I get bummed out a little bit when we, when you get them trolls that are basically telling me that, that you know, I'm an asshole for what I've done to my sister and, I'm thinking, guys, if you knew the real story, I'm her biggest supporter. I'm there whenever she needs me. Yeah. You know, I helped train this girl. I, I wrestled her for the first year of her career as a pink Power Ranger, a 15-year-old boy <laughs> taking his balls down
2: and adding boobs into a bra. I've done that. Like, Hold on a second here. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. How old was Ray at that point in time? she was about 13, 14. Okay. So you're 15 and she needed an opponent. So now you di- you're now the, and you mentioned this earlier. Now it all comes back. So you're the pink power ranger. Yes. And you're taping your balls down and adding boobs in the bras so that people think you're a girl.
3: That's right. And I imitated my older sister, Nikki. I imitated her walk and her mannerisms. <laughs> I-, I loved it. Like sort of impersonate people. Right. So right. my sister, you know, she's a live wire, my older sister, and I love her for that. And, basically we done a, a six woman tag to start with uh so it was my mum, soraya and then my older sister nikki i was a pink power ranger because one of the girls didn't turn up and you had another two girls that were on my team so we've done that in the first match and then after that me and soraya end up doing singles matches me as the pink lady in a pink power ranger outfit her as britney knight just to get our confidence up because soraya trusted me she was doing her head scissors and we were doing stuff like she would climb up and do the full victory roll and the run up the ropes back flip into the arm drag because we were practicing and training with each other all the time so you know she had that trust in me but yeah again i sort of put my persona on the back burner and become a woman for a year <laughs>
2: <laughs> wow the things the older brother does for the little sister right right <laughs> I remember um, uh, Stephen Merchant coming to one of the WrestleManias and Rock introduced me to him to kind of talk to him a little bit about wrestling and explain kayfabe and explain that sort of stuff. It seemed like, you know, I'm not sure if he was the director of the movie or... Yeah, so he was the
3: writer and director, yeah. He
2: took it really seriously and wanted to try and get it right because as we know, a lot of times Hollywood movies completely miss the mark when it comes to pro wrestling, but it seemed like he really, really cared about trying to get it as legit, at least from, from the business standpoint.
3: Yeah, he wanted to do uh, professional wrestling proud. He spent hours on the phone to countless people. You know, Uh, my family, he'd come and sat with us and ate Chinese two or three nights just to really get into our mind. He would go around to other British companies. I know he went to America for WrestleMania. He really chucked himself, you know, with two feet into this to make sure that he displayed wrestling to the best of his ability. And I believe the wrestling aspect he really did do it justice. Right. He, he didn't sort of crap on professional wrestling, which I was worried about as well. You know, Stephen Merchant is such a good guy. I can't thank him enough for, you know, how much love he shooed during that time because when they started making fight with my family in 2017, before it was released in 2019, I actually had a nervous breakdown. You know, I was in a really bad way. 22 stone. I literally lost everything. and And Stephen was so kind and gentle around that because he could see that I wasn't a very well man uh, and he was so caring and I-, I can't thank the guy enough. To this day, he still stay in contact and checks in with me.
2: Why did you have such a breakdown?
3: So I suffered with mental health really bad ah, gotcha. after the rejection from WWE for the final time. At this point, I had two children. Uh, I'm still on the Indies. I'm not earning barely any money. My wife's having to go out and work double shifts just to pay the rent, look after the kids. I just felt like a failure, Chris. I felt like, yeah. you know, I'd put my whole life into professional wrestling and I had nothing to show for it. I couldn't even afford to take, you know, go buy nappies or diapers for my kids at the shop. I was in such a bad way. It all got on top of me. And in the end, my nervous system shut down. I spent two weeks in hospital and a further three weeks in bed once I come out of hospital. Wow. Because my body just it completely shut down. And from there, this would have been about 2018. I moved away from Norwich, about 10 miles out of Norwich, and uh, I started focusing on myself. I forgot all my trainees. I left that to my mum and dad. I forgot about my company. You know, I forgot about wrestling, even my family, you know, my wife and kids. I, I just needed a few, a couple of months to get myself sorted. I started running, started getting myself healthy again. I dropped six stone in weight. Which is about ninety pounds. Jeez! And I started finding some self-love and self-belief again. And since then, especially coming out of the pandemic, being able to get eighteen months of solid training in, honestly, the world has opened up for me so much. I've, I've had five countries and fifty matches this year already.
2: That's great, man. It's it's interesting how the mental can affect the physical. Yeah, it's very much tied in. But but it sounds like you're in a good place. And losing ninety pounds, my goodness, that's. Uh... It's quite a statement. Yeah, I needed to get in shape. I knew
3: my work rate was there, Chris, but I've always feared that I've never looked like a professional wrestler. Mm. For so many years, there's been a stereotype of what a wrestler looks like. And that that guy's been a poster boy. John Cena is what everyone believed you should look like to be a professional wrestler. But I grew up in an era where if you look tough, you didn't have abs and, and stuff like that. Look at people like Drew McDonald or Dave Fit Finley you know these guys weren't in amazing shape but they looked like professional wrestlers you wouldn't want to fight them in a bar mm. that was the attitude that again the old school implemented onto me so i never trained like a wrestler i'd never commit to the gym i'd never commit to diets or anything like that whereas now that's my whole world you know i live and breathe for training professional wrestling I'm a professional wrestler 24-7, not just when I'm at the shows now.
2: No, that's what you have to do, man. All all across the board, you have to live it and breathe it, you know? And I think for you, because you were doing it so long, you might have forgotten that a bit. You know, once again, you started at 10 yeah. fucking years old, man.
1: <laughs> do you want a beautiful lawn?
2: As we start to wind down, let's talk a little bit about, about British wrestling when you were a kid and some of the greats that people might not know. Um, we've talked about Drew McDonald. Who are some other guys of that ilk that were really influential on you that you enjoyed watching and learned from?
3: Yeah, at the time, obviously, you have my dad and, and Jimmy Ocean. Jimmy Ocean was one of the, the finest professional wrestlers you'll ever meet. You know, my, my dad's his own admission, he was always an entertainer. My dad could move, don't get me wrong. He was a good worker, but Jimmy was the wrestler. You know, he was like Johnny Saint. Speaking of Johnny Saint, I got to watch Johnny Saint growing up. I still use his Russ Abbott in my matches to this day.
2: Johnny Saint is incredible because anybody that ever tries to do Johnny Saint moves, it never looks as good. And if people, if you guys haven't seen him, you should look him up. He does the most unique and intricate reversals and movements yeah. and, and and you just... I don't know how he was able to do that stuff, but I remember I went through a phase like, I'm going to tr- try this Johnny Saint that just looks like <laughs> shit. It's terrible. Can't do it. You know, I've done a couple
3: of trainer schools with, with Johnny and uh, he's just always say to me, look, it's slick, not quick. Wow. You know, don't rush. Just take your time. He said, if you're taking your time, the audience can see it. And I just, I remember that now when we're doing the, the British tech and the reversals, I just think slow. Even if I think I'm going slow, slow it down again. Yeah. Because that's what Johnny Saint would be telling me to do, right?
2: Slick, not quick. That's good.
3: Yeah. Slick, not quick. So that one's sort of embedded into me. I was 14 and he'd done a training score for my dad. So 18 years later, it's still there. Slick, not quick. Who, who else you got? I'm just trying to think of them all, to be honest, because I got to meet Giant Haystacks. Mm. I was about five years old. He was the biggest, scariest man I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> yeah, so I see the back end of Rollable Rocco. It was the back end before we moved to uh Tenerife and stuff like that. I'm just trying to think of all the guys.
2: I mean, you know, once again, I think if you're talking about guys like 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 Robbie Brookside and Doc Dean, those guys, that, I mean people know Robbie from a training standpoint. Obviously, he's been working in W in the WWE system NXT system for years. But I think he's probably one of the most underrated wrestlers that that I've ever worked in the ring with. He never really made it anywhere outside of England and obviously Europe, etc. cetera. But yeah. what a great talent he was.
3: Robbie had it. He's got the it factor. He's got that aura. Yeah. Honestly, I watched so many shows and travelled so much with Robbie Brookside. It doesn't matter where we were. As soon as Robbie's music played and he come onto that stage, the energy in the room lifted. Mm-hmm. His work speak for itself. You know, he was the ultimate babyface for me. He was the the biggest blue eyed in in the UK. You know, he was phenomenal. Him and uh, Tony Sinclair. Tony Sinclair was one of the best baby faces you'll ever witness he just he knew how to sell captivate an audience bring him in and he also knew when to uh you know do that gear change just one more person actually just because the fact that he was deaf alan kilby when i used to watch a gentleman called alan kilby so he was completely deaf but he was so experienced so my dad used to say he'd be working him in a match and alan would basically you know sort of sign to him keep on me keep on me rick keep on me but he knew when to come back without even able to hear the fans. And he'd always get a spot on. As soon as Alan come back and the place would be erupting. And Alan knew this. He knew, I don't know whether it was the vibrations or, or whatever, but his timing was impeccable. And again, that's something else that made me fall in love was, you know, I had to sit there and I'd say, Alan, how do you know? And, he, you know, he'd say to me, you just know, you just know, you know, <laughs> <laughs> honestly, whenever I used to see him, the first thing you say, Zach that too sugar tea now? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've never heard that before. A deaf wrestler. I mean, we've had a one-legged wrestler and a, a wrestler with one hand. Uh, Jim Mitchell used to have that in AWA, but I mean, a deaf wrestler. It's interesting. Oh. I wonder if he would watch the faces of the crowd. Maybe that's how he Yeah,
3: up. yeah, potentially, but. Chris, that's someone, I know I know you're a massive wrestling buff. You know, you, you love your history and everything. Mm. Please look for Alan Kilby. You'll be mesmerized by some of his work. He was
2: so good. Did you get a chance to work with a lot of these guys? Like when you were kind of in your, you know, formidable, who was the guys that taught you the most in the ring?
3: I have to give credit to my brother. Roy is his ever kid. You had Jimmy Ocean. You had my dad. You had Drew McDonald, Robbie Brookside. A guy called Brody Steele used to come over a lot for um, Brian Dixon. Tiger Steel used to come over for Brian Dixon. To be honest, they were the, the core solid guys. When I was a young lad sort of cutting my teeth in the business, the family really did take care of me in the sense of, if Zach's on the show, he needs to work with us. Mm. Another guy that sort of helped me out a lot was James Mason, Frankie Sloan. Both of these guys sort of took me under their wing. James used to, you know, watch the matches. I remember him saying to me one time, Zach, your clotheslines, you know, you just you just run with your arm out. He said, you, you need to take the red off, mate. Yeah. He said this to me when I was 18. And now people are like, don't, don't take a clothesline off, Zach. He takes your head off. But, <laughs> you know, it just sticks with me. I'm one of them guys. If you tell me something, you know, and I can visibly see it when I'm watching this back. I'm like, Jesus, like, I'm so thankful for this person taking three, four, five seconds to say, look, do this and it will improve you. You know, I think feedback's a, a huge part of professional wrestling and everyone needs to get it as and when they can.
2: Well, and you, you got to take the feedback and, and utilize it. You know what I mean? There's, there's nothing worse than when you give some advice and, and the person doesn't even try it. You know, that always bothers me. Like if you, if you get advice and, and give it a shot and it doesn't work, that's fine. But you just kind of, you don't know everything. I take advice to this day. You know, if someone gives me advice, you I mean, you have to.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, I say this to people. I've, I've spent a lifetime in this industry and I've studied this industry for a lifetime. But I don't know everything. And every day is a school day in professional wrestling. It doesn't matter if you've been in the business 60 years, there's always something else to learn. And that's the one thing that keeps me captivated and and keeps me loving this industry. I should have given up a long time ago,
2: Chris.
3: (laughs) But I haven't. I'm here because I do believe I've still got something. I've probably got more than a lot to offer just because of the history and what what I've experienced and what I've been around my entire life.
2: Do you train guys too? You you mentioned you have a a school.
3: Yeah, so um, I have 40 women. I have about eighty men, uh, and I've got sixty children. I train kids age six to sixteen. You said forty and eighty. Yes, we have roughly two hundred students in our WAW Academy.
2: Wow, that's huge! That, WAW is kind of the family promotion, right?
3: That's right. Yeah. So, uh, me, mum, and dad, we run the organisation. I do a lot of the training. Mum does a lot of the training with the girls and the, and the men, and I'll jump in occasionally. I sort of work a lot more with the children just because I was a child when I started wrestling. I want to make sure we're taking care of their bodies. Right. I don't want them bumping around, taking choke slams like I was at seven, eight years old. You know, even off a of clothesline, they're rolling back and bumping. There's no big bumps, you know, until they've sort of got over sort of 12, 13, 14, their bodies developing a little bit more. Then I'll start letting them bump around and try other stuff. But it's all British technical wrestling you know the court and hold the grapevine the russ abbott stuff like that (laughs) that's what they're learning and they get they're getting their their fundamentals down you know at six years old if they stay with me till they're 16 which multiple have i've been doing this kids class now for 10 years and in that 10 years 16 of my kids have gone up to the adults and won championships
2: oh that's great so is there some some names that came out of your school yeah, Paige, Soraya. <laughs> <laughs> Kip Sabian's an orange guy too. Did he train with you or? Is- yeah, so I actually trained Kip on his
3: first day. <laughs> we were in Galsden at a place called the Ocean Rooms and we done just a, a quick 2-hour seminar before the show. Kip turned up and to be honest, you could see he had talent, but he had the worst attitude. And I don't know if Kip <laughs> won't mind me saying this. He had the worst attitude on day 1. He then signed up to my academy. It took a couple of years to sort of get his head straight. And again, he'd say this on his own admission. But as soon as Kip, like light bulb moment, there was no holding him back. He, he was a natural, you know, he could do anything that you put in front of him. He just needed to get out, work for different companies and get the reps. That's exactly what he did.
2: Right. You know, and
3: now he's gone on to bigger and better things.
2: Last couple of things for you. So you seem really motivated, very positive, very happy. So what's kind of your, your game plan once you get the visa? Yeah.
3: So once I get a visa, I want to sort of dip my toe in America a little bit. You know, I want to travel around, do, do some of the indies in America, try and get some of the high profile shows. You know, as I said to you earlier, Chris, I'm sick of being a championship player. I want to be a premier league player. You know, I've invested a lot of time, my whole life into this industry. And I feel like my story is the biggest underdog story in professional wrestling. Every time I get to the final, I don't win. You know, I've, I've fall at the last hurdle. And that day where I finally achieved the dream, get a contract or whatever, that's going to go down in history, in my opinion. My sister blows my phone up all the time. And she's like, bro, everyone would have stopped by now. They would have given up. But the fact that you keep going because you believe in yourself that much, you know, it's the biggest underdog story in professional wrestling. And uh, I want to keep learning, keep evolving, and hopefully one day get that contract.
2: Last question for you, man. What's your favorite match that you've ever had? Oh, wow. I would probably say there's two that, that literally spring to
3: mind immediately. One was against my brother in October of last year. It was our big show, Fight Night 4. And we basically done the European champion versus the world champion. My brother was the world champion. Uh, I was the European champion. My brother went villain. He basically said to me, bro, we need to build momentum. I want you to take the championship tonight. And because I'm one of the bookers for WAW, I was against it. Like, no, you shouldn't take the belt if you're one of the bookers or the boss, bro. No, like, but anyway, we went out there and we tore it up. It was absolutely fantastic. From wrestling at the beginning, some Johnny Saints stuff, moving forward to, you know, some sort of Mexican luchador style into sort of some ECW hardcore style. It had everything. And at the, you know, we had Soraya as a special guest referee as well. So once the match finished and all three of us got to stand there together for the first time in 12 years in front of 2,000 people, that's a memory I'll definitely live with. Uh, And the last one is probably a a gentleman called Nathan Cruz. Me and him have got a very similar story. Nathan's always fell at the last hurdle as well. And we've both sort of got this new fire in our belly to to give it one last chance. Uh, And me and him wrestled April last year. And that's probably one of my greatest matches to date. Both of them are on YouTube under Ww Wrestling.
2: Well, man, it's been great talking to you. And it seems uh, it's cool to hear your attitude. And there's, there's some big things coming for you. I can feel it. Yeah.
3: I feel it. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. As long as I've got your backing, mate.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, good talking to you, man. Hopefully we'll see you overseas soon. You'll get that dark match. I promise.
3: Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that.